Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this podcast is hopefully described by its title, My Time Capsule, because in it I basically ask my guests to choose five things from their life, four things that they love and one thing they'd rather forget, that they would like to put in a time capsule. And then we talk about those things. Yeah, because when you say it like that, it doesn't exactly blow your socks off, does it? But uh, bear with me, as my guest in this episode is the American actress Kathleen Rose Perkins. She was brilliant in the British comedy show's episodes with Matt LeBlanc, Stephen Mangan and Tamsin Gregg and Ballot Monkeys by the team that brought you Outnumbered, which also starred Hugh Dennis alongside Ben Miller, Daisy Haggard, Andy Nyman, Sarah Hadland and me, I'm delighted to say. On telly in the USA, and therefore almost certainly also on British telly, Kathleen has appeared in, and this is just a small selection, Just Legal, How I Met Your Mother, Nip Tuck, Ellie Stone, Grey's Anatomy, Trust Me, Gary Unmarried, Till Death, NCIS Los Angeles, The Mentalist, Law and Order, Man Up, Fresh Off the Boat, Colony, You're the Worst, Code Black, American Housewife, I Am Not Okay With This, Big Shot, and currently... Doogie Kami Aloha, MD. That's as well as the 16 movies she's been in, including Gone Girl, A Short History of Decay, and How Sarah Got Her Wings. Anyway, through the wonders of modern technology, well, Zoom, I was lucky enough to talk to Kathleen at her home in the USA, from a hotel bedroom in North London. Hmm, Louis Armstrong was right. It is a wonderful world. I hope you enjoy our chat. Hello! Hello! <laughs> Can you believe it? I can't! That was exciting! <laughs> Bloody worked! <laughs> I always, when it works, you go, oh my god, it's working! Oh my god, 
God, it's working. We're, we're actually talking with each other. How are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I, I, I was just, um, uh, wait, no, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm very good, actually, because um, I'm filming. So good. And in fact, for the first time in my career, I'm playing an American. Oh, let me hear your accent. I want to hear it. Now you say that, suddenly I feel completely embarrassed. Look at me, I've gone outrageously English. Yes, you're very English right now. <laughs> <laughs> the way I get away with it, I think, is that I go very deep. That's good. Yeah. Like all English people, basically, I learned to speak American by watching cowboy movies. Yeah, it bothers us so much because you and the Australians take so many roles away from us <laughs> <laughs> because you can do our accents so well. And we really don't. There's only a few, a handful of American actors who try to do English or very rarely Australian accents, mm. which is good. I get it. But why would you? I'm quite a critic of English people doing American accents. Me too. <laughs> yeah. For years, we've got away with it. Because I remember years ago, Bob Hoskins, and he used to do a sort of as if he was from New York, but he didn't really. He was from London. Really bad accent, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I pride myself on being able to hear when people are from somewhere else but doing an American accent. <laughs> and then they get hate mail, do they? Yeah. Yeah, rightly so. I'm a great hate mail writer. <laughs> <laughs> what Twitter handles do you use when you're sending those hate tweets? Yeah. Um, like, at how dare you? I tend to send tweets to Gwyneth Paltrow saying, I don't think you are English, young woman. She really believes that she is. <laughs> Listen, I understand that. I guess it makes sense. Like, you end up living there... There's going to be some tweaks to the way you speak. Mm -hmm. I never did that, though. I never took on a British thing. I mean, I'd only stay there for a couple of months each year yeah. while we were shooting episodes and ballot monkeys. And But uh, I never took on any kind of expressions. No, why would you really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to walk down the side pavement, pavement. The pavement? Pavement. Yeah, that's not a thing. But no. What's a vest? You say call sweaters vests. <laughs> All of ours were stolen from the French anyway. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Kathleen. So have you had a chance to think about some things? Yes, I have a little list written down in everything right next to me. <laughs> well, I'll just sit back then and just off you no. go. I can't wait. <laughs> no, let's talk to me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it was a hard one because it's like, uh, it's really weird to try and think about your whole life and kind of see what's important to you, you know? Yeah, I do. Because it's also really thought-provoking and it, it inspires conversation, which is the whole point of a podcast, right? It is, yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. So we're going <clears throat> to look at five things from your life that we're going to put into a time capsule, Kathleen. Okay. All right. So we're going to start with number one. What's number one? Well, I think that I should kind of go from childhood. Mm -hmm. Um. There was a family fun park in our neighborhood when I was growing up called the Riverside R&R. &R. Yeah. And I would put the entire Riverside R&R, &R, and that includes, you know, it's by a river, it's Riverside. So we, we rented paddle boats and canoes. And then um, there was a batting cage, like baseball batting cage. And yeah, yeah. Um, there was an arcade and a roller rink and a BMX bike track. 
and an ice cream parlor and miniature golf course. Oh my God. <laughs> the reason why I would put that in is because from the ages eight to about 13 or 14, my family owned and operated this park. Wow. So my dad, along with a fellow teacher, he was a, my dad was a phys ed teacher um, at the local high school that we all went to and a fellow teacher of his, they were bored during their summers. So they thought, let's just open and run this <laughs> family of fun park for their hometown. Mm -hmm. And my dad had free labor in that he has four sons and me. Yeah, I was the youngest of five. And so he made us all work there every summer. <laughs> My brothers would pick up all the balls in the batting cages and put them back into the machines. And then, and, and they would also like put the boats into the river so that people can, you know, they would rent out the boats and they would, we would rent out the golf clubs and the balls and wow. <laughs> the little piece of paper that we keep score on with the little pencils. And, and then I got really good at learning how to do soft serve swirls for ice cream cones. And <laughs> that was our childhood. And it happened to coincide with the moment in our family that my mother left my father and um, our whole family basically just kind of fell apart. Like, you know, I got into some bad things. Like I started to, you know, drinking alcohol and, and my other brother went to jail for vandalism. <laughs> like, <Wow>. <laughs> I mean, we were all just a little screwed up while we were selling family fun <laughs> <laughs> in our local hometown. That also is just like, it describes our childhood to a T. Like it was all about fun and games. My dad was a phys ed teacher, you know, the coach of the baseball team and the softball team and the, and the basketball team all at different times. Football, he coached. He was, he was you know, about games. Mm. But for him, they were not games. They were work. And so while we were hosting all these people to come play games, we were working. Mm. And it was wonderful to have this place at our disposal. I mean, we had ice cream anytime we wanted, but we also had to work. Mm. Everybody else is having fun, but it's your work. That's the problem with it. Yeah. 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 It was, it's, it's, I don't think that we've ever really, I, I don't, I don't know about my, the rest of my brothers, but for me, it's hard for me to decipher what's pleasure and what's work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, in some ways that is awesome because I feel like I'm a very productive person. And I really know that I got that from my father. Yeah. But in other ways, I don't know sometimes when I'm having fun. I don't like I'll, I'll have to kind of check myself to see, is there anything fun in my life <laughs> right now? Because I make lists and I'm a, you know, I'm a doer. I'm just, I just need to like, you know, check things off of lists. And do people tell you off about that? I mean, for example, if you go out with friends somewhere, do they say stop being the person who's providing it? Oh, Christopher, my partner in life, we never got married. So we're, we're just partners, but we've been together for 21 years. So it's, it's, you know, he's basically my husband, but not, <laughs> he has demanded that every trip that we take every third day, I don't plan something <laughs> <laughs> so that he can just relax and yeah. not have to think about the things that 
that has to be checked off my list. Mm-hmm. But he also really appreciates that I do all the research and the homework and I make sure that we have like a really full, fun, pleasurable experience. It's really strange, but that's really informed my life. And it's also, it's also just a place that, that holds a really special place in my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a family run business. And that, is, does it hold that special place because you associate it with before your mother left? Um, yes and no. Like it, it, it also is, it's the last time we were all together. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, it was it the does, last yeah. five years that we were living in the same house, doing everything together. And pretty much all of us were in school at the time. And my dad was a teacher. My mom also substitute taught. But at the time, she was you know, seeking out a new job at a psychiatric center <laughs> as a counselor for adolescents. So she was, um, she was kind of getting ready to leave. She was kind of breaking off. But that place definitely kept my family together in the last few years that we were together. So, so it's really special to me. Yeah, I, I can tell. And for so many different reasons. <laughs> but when you went off the rails, Kathleen, do you think you went off the rails because your mother left or do you think you would have done anyway? Oof. Were you in a way rebelling against this perfect world that you were creating all the time? Look, everything's fun. Come on, come and have ice cream. And you went, I want a drink. Yeah, at 13 and 14 there was going to be a part of me that was like rebelling against the family and wanting to figure out my own identity. So I was going to probably break off a little bit, but um, you know, I've been in therapy for the last 14 years of my life, trying to figure out what my 13 year old self was thinking. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I think for anyone 13, 14 is around the time where you start to kind of figure out what kind of, bad stuff you're going to get into. Like, where do you draw the line? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it also coincided with my mom leaving my dad. And then, you know, I went with her to live with her. So we left this male dominated household because there was five men Mm -hmm. and two women. And I was the youngest also. So I never really spoke above a whisper before I was like five years old. (laughs) So Consequently, you know, I I found out that I'm an artist, right? I'm a performer. I like to do that. But I am that was never going to show itself while I was in that household. Mm -hmm. And it also coincided 13, 14 is when I started performing in, in my high school theater. So that's where I found the love for theater. And it makes sense because I found my voice in a way because we left this place that was just drowned out with so many male voices (laughs) and then I could speak and I could speak above a whisper and I could like find out who I am and what I want to do with my life and oh yeah I actually can say a punchline of a joke or I can you know I I'm kind of funny or I can be dramatic and I can hold court I never held court before we left. So um, because my brothers were incredibly dynamic, Mm -hmm. amazing young men who just ruled the roost. (laughs) Definitely. Everything was a competition. Everything. (laughs) They were always play basketball two on two. And there was no place for me to be, to play with them unless my mom forced them to let me play with them. And then they were like, Oh, I don't want Kathy. Do you want Kathy? 
they'd say, you can cheer for us on the sidelines. (laughs) And I was like, no, I want to (laughs) play. How interesting that you should then start seeing, in a way, a job that is fun. I mean, acting is fun, but it's a job. So in fact, you, you carry on that process of, yeah, look, here I am having great fun and we're all playing, but actually you're working. And you'd been doing that right since you were a young girl. Yeah, it's weird because my brothers and my dad kind of look at me like I'm, uh, they think it's very interesting that I'm an artist and that I didn't follow in my mom or my dad's footsteps and I didn't become a teacher or an administrator or a health worker. I didn't do anything like that. I became this artist that was like completely plucked out of nowhere. Mm. But it's the same thing to me. There's competition. I have to get the role over all the other women. who are vying for it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just like you said, it's supposed to be playful. I can't differentiate where the work begins and the fun ends or vice versa. Like work is fun for me and fun is work for me. So, so yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, It's just a little different. (laughs) No, that all makes sense. Well, I mean, it sounds like paradise, the idea of, what are you doing, Dad? We're going to start up a park for everybody in the town. You know, it's going to be fantastic. And you think, wow, this is amazing. But while everybody else is having a holiday, you're working. My dad would play the same eight track in the sound system that went throughout. Like, Mm -hmm. you could hear it everywhere you were on the premises. (laughs) And my brother, to this day, he can't hear Betty Davis' eyes. Do you know that song? She's got Betty Davis' eyes. I do know that song, yeah. He can't hear that without, like, cringing and (laughs) thinking about, like, picking up baseballs and softballs and putting them in this big stackle bucket and then dumping them to the machine. (laughs) It's exactly the same. Anybody who works in a fun fair, you just have to look at them to know that it looks like the perfect job. We're just having fun all day long and these rides, but those rides never stop and you've got to keep them going tough. It really was. It was like, it was such a big perk, but it was also, it was full on work and exhausting, like backbreaking labor mm-hmm. you know, at, at times. So like we loved it, but we also hated it. And now I love it. You absolutely love the memory of yeah. it. That's nice though, isn't it? Yeah. Well, then we should take that Riverside Park in its entirety and put it into the time capsule for you. Perfect. Thank you. That's number one. I got another big thing to put in it. That's right. It's a huge time capsule. (laughs) You'll be fine. (laughs) Good. My second thing is a cruise ship. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously? Yeah. um, I worked on a cruise ship when I was 20. I think I was like 22 or something, 23. I worked on the Silver Seas cruise liner named the Silver Wind. And it was a world cruise line. And I got the job auditioning for a singer dancer (laughs) in the entertainment crew. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I mean, it was, I moved out to LA for, I'd been here for maybe about seven months. And then I saw this audition in, you know, the backstage West and, and I went down there and I, I auditioned to be a singer slash dancer in this, in this like group of five little entertainment group that they were putting on these ships. And I got the job as one of the dancers and I'd never been outside of the United States before that. Mm -hmm. And then 
we had rehearsal for a couple of months. It didn't go so well because the director cast me as a dancer, but I'm more of a singer than a dancer. And he, for some reason, got that mixed up. And he, you know, a month in was like, why aren't you better at dancing? (laughs) Because I auditioned as a singer who could dance a little, but you cast me as, he was like, well, you need to get better. And that gave me a lot of anxiety. The idea of like traveling across the world, because the place that we got on the ship was in Tel Aviv in Israel. And then we were just going to keep going around the world until we ended up in Mexico six months later. Wow. So I got to see places that I couldn't, I couldn't afford to see now. Like it was, and I was in my twenties and I was like on the Komodo Island watching the Komodo dragon and its natural habitat. And and we went to Saigon and we went to Hong Kong and uh, Brunei and Indonesia, Malaysia and parts of Australia and and New Zealand and um, the South Pacific Islands. I mean, we were all (laughs) over the place and I had never seen anything other than, you know, pretty much the United States. it was the first time that I had like a full on panic attack um, mm. because I suffer from some anxiety stuff. And it was the first time I really knew that I was, it was, you know, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I was, I was just incredibly nervous all the time about this job. I didn't know if he was going to fire me <laughs> at any moment because he didn't like the way I danced. <laughs> and luckily he kept me on and then he left the ship mm. and then just let us be and then I could kind of get into this um, rhythm of just traveling around and experiencing new places. I felt like I conquered a fear, mm-hmm. but also learned how to be a world traveler and be really interested in cultures and places. And we didn't have iPhones or the internet really or anything like that available to us. So we just basically had to get off in every port that we were in and we'd have like maybe three to six or seven <laughs> hours to do as much as we could possibly do and we did. We were we were young and we were really excited about where we were. So we just, I mean, I hiked so many amazing hikes and and uh, jumped into so many amazing waterfalls. And I mean, I saw the world and got to experience it as much as I could possibly experience it. And I was luckily with these really gung-ho, amazing young people I fell in love and I fell out of love and my, my heart got broken. And I mean, it was just such an amazing experience for Mm. a person in their, you know, twenties to, I remember getting off the ship in Mexico and I was like, I don't want to go home just yet. I'm just (laughs) going to stay here for a couple of days by myself. I would never have done that. Like just kind of stayed in a hotel by myself and just walked around Mexico, Acapulco, (laughs) like, Mm. I felt like a completely different person, truly. For a lot of people, that would have been, you go to university, you come back a different person. And I have to say that, once again, your father's instilled in you this work ethic that not once did you mention whilst describing this six months of going around the world. Not once did you mention the fact that you were performing every day. No. (laughs) No. No. How many shows did you do? Oh, yeah. Well, so that was the great thing about this 
cruise liner. It was a high-end luxury cruise liner, so and it was all inclusive. So people would come on, and they wouldn't have to pay for their drinks or anything like that. It was just all included. Mm-hmm. And we had three shows. There were only three evenings that we had to perform in the course of two weeks. Oh my God! You really got away with it, didn't you? Really badly. <laughs> no, but here's the other part is like our other duties were social duties. So basically we would have to go up to happy hour, the hour mm. before dinner and just walk around and schmooze with people. And we could drink anything we wanted to. And I will say, because I was an anxious person, I was a teetotaler when I got on. I didn't drink any alcohol because I had learned my lesson, you know, in my teens. Mm -hmm. And I decided to clean it all up. And then I didn't drink alcohol for a few years. And then I got on the boat and lasted three months. And then (laughs) I was like, I think I might have a drink tonight. (laughs) At happy hour. And I will tell you, the social part of that was so much easier drinking alcohol (laughs) Mm. because I was talking to people who were, you know, in their fifties, sixties, seventies, who were millionaires and really, really wealthy people. And I had nothing in common with them. I was this, you know, 20 year old who'd never been anywhere from Michigan and Mm. was like, Oh, so did you go on your safari today? You know, (laughs) like I didn't know what to talk to them about. And alcohol fixed all of that. (laughs) So, yeah, I drank like a fish the last three months. (laughs) Did that improve the dancing? Oh, well, (laughs) no. No, No, maybe I did get a little bit better as a dancer. I just basically, there was a moment there where the guy said, you need to get better or I'm going to find somebody else. And I said, Mm -hmm. okay, I should quit. I don't want this. This is so painful. And then I went, I'm a Len Perkins daughter. I can't, you don't quit. I'm just going to go until he fires me and then I'll just deal with it. Um, and so I, I just made peace in some way around that and did my work. And then my dancing actually did improve because I was more comfortable mm. and just less worried about what he thought of me, this guy. Yeah. And honestly, like I <laughs> I went through my old things about a year ago and found a note written by him saying, we're so happy to have you on this cast. And Uh, I was like, you're a liar. What? (laughs) (laughs) It all worked out. Yeah. You spent another part of your life in a fun park. (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, isn't that what we're doing? When we choose this business, we're choosing Mm -hmm. entertainment. We're choosing a place for people to go. We're choosing to work in a place where people go for their entertainment. Yes. Have you improved in that area? Do you think that you still get anxious about things when people are criticizing you? Uh, I actually don't think that it was his criticism that was the thing that was giving me as much anxiety. It was the the fear of the unknown. Uh, I think that was mostly where the anxiety came from. Yeah. And no, that hasn't gotten better. (laughs) (laughs) I guess in a way it has, but you know, like when I turned 40, I had a big anxiety, panic attack, kind of depression. Really? It was the first time that I realized I needed some kind of chemical help. So I I got on an antidepressant, a Prozac basically, Mm -hmm. and um, it was life-changing. It was amazing. And then 
they said, and while you're on it, which, you know, I was on it for nine months. The whole reason is to not make the peak so high and the lows so low. Mm. And it can hopefully teach your brain that your brain starts to do the chemical balancing itself. So eventually you come off the Prozac and your brain is actually supplying those drugs itself. Well, you think. (laughs) (laughs) Jury's still out, but I think I haven't gone back on it. I haven't tried that again. And I feel like I can manage life. I'm learning to manage it, but I also would never say never. No. If I need to go back to some chemical help, then I would, I would definitely, I don't think that there's anything wrong in that. And I don't think there should be any shame around it either. No, particularly considering how well it worked. Yeah. And it works fantastically well for a lot of people. I think it's much more of an American thing than it is an English thing. I think that English people are sort of slightly embarrassed by it, but they're becoming less and less so, and I think rightly so. Oh, big time. And I've become so, it's so L.A., you know. (laughs) It's so very L.A. to have a therapist. And I took it up one notch by now I hike with my therapist. (laughs) So we go on hikes together and talk about all my issues. (laughs) That sounds fun. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) I'm going to ask, did you keep in touch that sort of six months with those people? So when you went places, you would go as a, it was your troop. It's very crazy to be in that bubble and in that little, it's a little world on a little ship in the middle of the ocean. So you really get tight with everybody in the crew. The rooms are so tiny and there's like lots of angry, lots of fights, Mm. lots of like, lots of sex, (laughs) lots of, you name it. There's stuff happening in those first three levels of the ship because, you know, all of us are on the bottom, bottom levels. So (laughs) scary. (laughs) The thing I love about that is all these millionaires have paid a lot of money to go on their trips. I bet they had hardly any sex. No, yes. <laughs> I never, never once thought about that, but that you're so right. You're so right. There was a lot more going on down below. <laughs> yeah. The real fun was being had by the people who had no money. <laughs> a lesson for life, maybe. Yeah. But there we are. I should take the full six months Around the world, you lucky thing. Oh, so cool. It's in the time capsule if you want to go and look at it. Thank you. <laughs> that's brilliant. So that's two items we put in there. So what's number three? Okie dokie, time for a little break in my chat with Kathleen so we can play you some, hopefully, entertaining ads. As they say over the pond, don't go flipping. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back to My Time Capsule, where it's time to discover what else Kathleen Rose Perkins would like to put in her time capsule. So the third one would be basically, I don't know what part of it that I would want to keep in the time capsule. Like it could just be a script or it could be uh, a piece of clothing that I wore, but it was obviously my first like big, Mm -hmm. big job in film and television and was television. Um, I was working at Merrill Lynch (laughs) as a receptionist. I mean, I'd been here for about five years and nothing was happening. Like I could not get arrested Mm. in this business. (laughs) And finally, I found a manager, a representative who really believed in me and started getting me into auditions. So um, that was amazing. And at the same time, my partner, Christopher, was buying a house first time homeowner and everybody in our social group said, well, is Kathleen moving in? Are you guys getting married? What's going on with that? Like, how does that affect Mm. your relationship? And he was like, no, I'm just buying a house. She's staying in her apartment. We're not like, I'm buying a house. Right. So did you feel pressure? I, I mean, I didn't feel any pressure But I think he did, definitely, because he was getting all the questions. There was a lot of, like, weird tension going on and strange, like, assumptions just because he was investing in a house. And Christopher had a writer friend who thought that that was a really interesting story. So he said, do you mind if I write something about that? And Christopher said, yeah, go do whatever you want. That's awesome. And the guy wrote a pilot in the course of a week and sold it to Fox. Wow. And then they had auditions. <laughs> and I was like, uh, to my new manager, I was like, I have to audition for this. I'm, it's me. I'm, <laughs> uh, it's about me. And he thankfully got me in. I had to audition for the casting director. And then I had to audition for the producer. They all know all the whole time that the story is based on me because it's Christopher's <laughs> friend who wrote it. And I'm auditioning to play my part. And they were like, we want to test you. But when you go to studio and network, uh, you can't tell them that this is about you or based on your life because they most likely won't want to hire you. And I was like, that's so weird. <laughs> okay. So I go and test. The weirdest thing about this is that my boyfriend's friend, he's auditioning to play the lead part. (laughs) It was my boyfriend, basically. So we have to do a chemistry read 
together for the test. So we practice and in the scene, we have to kiss each other. And I'm like, this is the weirdest thing. I'm kissing my boyfriend's best friend right now. And it's all okay because it's all in hopes of getting a job. (laughs) (laughs) So we go to the test, we get through the studio and then we go to the network and they start pairing people up and we're like, okay, we're up next. So this is going to be amazing because we worked on it. And they come out and say, that was great, everybody. Thank you so much. You can go home. We'll let you know. (laughs) Oh, no. So we never chemistry read at all. I get home and I'm just waiting for the phone call. And I finally get it. And they go, you got the part. And I'm like, oh, I mean, this is, I'm I'm a receptionist at Merrill Lynch. (laughs) I I finally get a job, like a, a really good job. And I'm freaking out. It's so great. And I call Christopher's best friend. His name is Heath. I call him and I go, what happened? Did you hear anything? What happened? Did you get the part? And he said, okay, so they called me and said, we love you, but you're not right for the lead. We think you'd be perfect as the best friend. (laughs) Oh, my word. (laughs) So the two of us end up playing ourselves in this pilot. And it was the first job that I got that kind of allowed me to stop Mm -hmm. having, you know, day jobs, being able to afford life working in film and television, mostly television Mm -hmm. ever since. Yeah. So that it's a big deal for me. And also eventually I did move into my boyfriend's house and then eventually we bought a house together, but it took (laughs) us years. (laughs) And, And that's just It's all good stuff that happens in its own time. Like, that's the best way for me to get my first job. Well, it would have been terribly disappointed if you weren't good enough to play yourself, wouldn't it? Or if they were like, she's just not right for that part. (laughs) Just don't believe her. No. Whereas this other girl. It's like, basically, it's her. It's fantastically astute, isn't it, of them to see that actually he would have been better playing the mate when he was the mate. Yeah. Whoever was making those decisions, they were on the ball, weren't they? Yeah, and then subsequently we did it and it was fine and then it didn't get picked up and we never worked together again. (laughs) But, but yeah, I mean, they do have those moments, don't they, those executives? Yeah. I love in a way the crossover between that and episodes where that happens a lot. I mean, it's quite brutal, isn't it, the American system? One of my favorite scenes in episodes was me, Daisy Haggard, mm. playing Myra, who's the head of comedy, and Joe May, who's playing head of casting. And, and we're all just sitting in an office and we're watching a videotape of a casting session. And we talk over the entire audition. <laughs> like, we don't listen to her at all. It's this woman auditioning for the part. And we're like, I don't know. Is she more the best friend? She's kind of best friendy. I don't know. She like did something to her nose. Mm. Maybe. I don't know how anything gets cast in this town, but it does. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, it's really, it's really amazing when you watch somebody who like gets launched and found for a really specific role that they've just completely committed themselves to and then you know and and the executives believed in them enough to give it to them Mm. that's when it's good that's when it's nice i'm proud to be a part of this business when that stuff happens absolutely what was the name of the program it's called jack's house jack's house yeah can we find it no no 
I mean, you know, it's one of those pilots that they did, you know, they would shoot like 15 to 20 pilots a year and then pick up maybe four or five. Mm. So there was just a lot of content that nobody's ever seen. It would be an amazing archive, wouldn't it? I bet there's some fantastic stuff there that didn't get through. I think that would be an amazing program, actually, if they just like started airing all of the old pilots that have been shot over the years. Wouldn't that be amazing? And then, you know, at some point, the audience members can vote. We want to see more of this one. (laughs) And then then you make a show. Yeah, we want the one with the young Bette Midler in it. You're going to have to recast it. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what she said. Yeah. I know people who've been through the process with American television where they've auditioned and been told you have to tell us how much you want to get paid. Yeah. That whole thing is dangled in front of them before they actually get the part. Can't possibly know what you would need four or five years from now. So I just shot a show in Hawaii. It just started airing called Doogie Kamealoha. Mm -hmm. It's a reboot of the Doogie Howser MD show from the 90s for Disney Plus, and it's only 10 episodes. You know, it was different when we were doing broadcast network television. It was 24 episodes. You were going to work like eight to nine months out of the year. So there really wasn't Mm -hmm. an ability to do other stuff. But now you're only doing maybe three or four months of work every year, and they still want the exclusivity. They want you to just do this one thing. Oh, right. So um, it's hard because we're trying to now fight for the right that you guys have now is to be able to work on anything, you know, that's not coinciding or conflicting schedule-wise because it's not really fair. The rest of the year, I haven't really been able to work on anything else. You know, during the whole course of doing episodes, we would do maybe seven to nine episodes every 18 months. (laughs) That's because it's a British company making Yeah, exactly. But I still had the exclusivity with Showtime, so I couldn't do any other show. But yeah, it's really weird to know what to ask for in a contract that's you're looking down the barrel of five years and it is good money. And how do you turn away from that? Mm -hmm. Like for this Doogie show, I'm starting to write and to pitch my own stuff and Mm -hmm. wanting to act in it as well. And they want to have rights over what else I write on, which is mind blowing. Well, tell them you also make wooden furniture. (laughs) No, they want a piece of that. Yeah. They're like, well, you can only make it for our show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Well, we should definitely put your first big break. Thank you. I'm not quite sure what we will put in, maybe the script or we'll find something that will represent it. We'll start a campaign saying we want all these pilots put onto Netflix. (laughs) They should do that. I really do think that would be a great idea. And in fact, I bet you when Netflix hear this, they'll go, Jesus Christ, why haven't we thought of that? Yeah, and we won't get any piece of it. No. (laughs) Unless they put Jack's house on and somebody votes for Jack's house to be. (laughs) Okay, that's the campaign we're starting right now. Good luck. Okay. All right, let's move on to number four. Okay, so number four is the bad thing, the thing that I like to get rid of. Mm -hmm. And I guess you fast forward to the worst experience that I've ever had in this business was... And I do have something very specific that I would put into the time capsule with this. It would be a wedding dress because uh, on a particular pilot that I got cast in, it was after we finished with episodes. So it was a few years ago. Mm -hmm. I had to wear a wedding dress for the picture that they hung on the wall for the props. Yeah. 
And I remember putting it on and realizing that that is probably the only time I'm ever going to wear a wedding dress (laughs) because we chose not to get married. I have no interest in throwing a wedding. Um, (laughs) I guess I could probably play a bride at some point, but I haven't since before that and probably won't because I'm like more now the mom roles, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And so, yeah, it was really weird to be in a wedding dress. I get what, uh, what women feel. Mm. I get it. But it also was like creepy to me and very foreign. So then we do the pilot. It was one in which I had to kind of wear a fat suit in it. I was a woman who had lots of kids and just was a little meek and and not great. And I complied with all of it, even though it was really, it was very strange to, Mm -hmm. to do that, to transform my my appearance, but I, I understood what they were going for. They wanted to, you know, have this woman in her lowest point in the pilot. And then she'd get, you know, just, she'd get stronger and stronger. Yeah. And I was like, cool. And then we shot it. It was a pretty good experience, like a lovely experience. Cause I was the lead of the show. It was really, it was really cool. And then they picked it up with the caveat of, we'll, we'll pick it up if you recast Kathleen. <laughs> no. So I was, just completely devastated. Oh God. And look, Mike, I've been fired before. I've actually been fired more than most people. I (laughs) I don't know anyone who's been as fired as me. (laughs) So I, you know, it happens and that's, that's okay. It's just something that I have to kind of be aware of and know. And, and it, you know, there is a little PTSD around every job I have, because I assume every job they're going to fire me from, because that's just what you think when you've been through it a couple of times. But this one was rough. And this one was definitely the one that after I got the phone call, I was like, I'm done. I cannot be a part of this business that treats people like that. And it was the whole thing of like, the showrunner was told, look, you have a choice you can either not get picked up and keep your cast as it is, or you can get picked up and you have to replace Kathleen. And it was like, oh my gosh, what a terrible position to be put. Of course course she's going to choose to keep going with the show because there's all these other people who have jobs and it's just one casualty, but I happened to be the casualty. And it was like, it was, it was, I was like, I, I can't be a part of this kind of business that mm-hmm. I did my job. I complied with everything they wanted me to do. I, I, I watched the pilot. I thought my performance was on point and, and it was good. And, mm. and yet this still happens. And it's, um, that's when, you know, you're in a business that was like really brutal and I don't want to put up with, I don't want to be a part of this brutality. It, it hurts too much. And then the thing that I got out of it was I wanted so badly to be put in that position that that showrunner got put in. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see what I would do. So that means I have to write something. So from that moment on, I was like, 
I'm going to try and figure out how to write. And luckily my partner, Christopher Moynihan, he's been a writer forever. He started as an actor and moved into writing. Um, he's amazing. So he helped me through this entire process of trying to figure out what are the stories that I want to tell and how do you write a pilot? And I have been doing that. And it's been a whole other ball game for me in that you know, the feeling you get when you start out at acting where you're hungry and you want to do the hustle and I'll go from five auditions across town. I will do anything that they want me to do. I don't feel that way around acting anymore. When I get an audition, I'm like, oh, I don't want to prep this. I don't want to do this. Yeah. But I have that. I have that feeling around writing now where I'm like, I just am hungry and I've been able to get some stuff done. Like I sold a pilot to TNT and that was supposed to star me and Tamsin Gregg (laughs) 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 and it didn't get made. It didn't get made, but that's okay. I was just like over the moon that somebody was going to pay me to write something like that's amazing. So in some ways it was a really good thing for me, the way that it, ended up, you know, uh, Christopher always talks about this thing called Amor Fate. Do you know what that is? No, I don't. The love of fate. Right. This idea that you're just basically like, I'm just going to take in what's happening to me and use it to my benefit or, you know, just, it's all about perspective. How do you see the things that are happening and how are you going to react to them? How, like you can choose how you react to them. Mm. And there were so many moments and signs to me that I was like, I'm kind of glad that it happened this way because I have to be, because otherwise I'd be upset with my life and I don't want to be upset with my life. It could destroy you a thing yeah. like that. You know, can, you say when you were very close to thinking, well, that's it, I can't do this now because it's just too painful. For a long time, I tried to figure out why, why was it me? Did I do something? What, you know, what part of this is my blame? And I, you can't do that. You, you have to go, I don't know what it was, but I believe in myself. And I have to contain my confidence in my work or else mm-hmm. I will suffer. And I don't want to suffer mm-hmm. <laughs> this any more than I already have. I, I want to be able to have, I want to have a life. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. And let's face it, from an early age, it's been instilled in you that work is fun. Right. And it should be fun. I am, again, I am my, my father's daughter. You win some and you lose some. For him, it was always like, when you lose, you learn from it, move on and go play the next game. Well, I think you're a fabulous actress, so there you are. Thank you. That's all that matters, too. Like, Just as care. long as Mike likes me. If he, Mike likes me, then I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to put that in there, although clearly there are elements of it that you, in a way, sort of treasure. Yeah, but I don't need that impetus anymore, so you can have it. Okay. Because I'm on to the next thing, so it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's do that ourselves. Let's move on to our final item. That would be my fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo. And it's just gratuitous bragging. I'm just... (laughs) 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 But I have to put it in there because, again, I've worked so hard to get it. Again, it's a game. It's a sport. And, again, it is, like, the only actual skill that I feel like I have is (laughs) I I can throw a few kicks and punches. And I'm really, really proud of it. (laughs) Because I put a lot of time and a lot of money into, like, you know, 
getting to that point. And also the other part of it is that it was always the thing when I didn't get the audition or I got fired from a role. It was always the place that I could go and do a completely different type of art (laughs) with a bunch of people who became my family and friends because we've all kind of grown up together. I still like meet you know, a couple of fellow masters, because we're masters now (laughs) in the park, and we run all of our forms and our, you know, our one step sparring and all these kind of things. (laughs) We still work on stuff. We bring our nunchucks to the park. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) You'd think, but we're all like over 40 and kind of chummy and nice and tiny. We're just like, you know, and then we get out the nunchucks and try to wield them. It's very silly and fun. But yeah, it was the one thing that had nothing to do with television or this business. Mm. There was life outside of film and television, which is was always, always good for me to remember. And I'd been at the same dojang for the last like 20 some odd years. So yeah, it's really special and it's a big part of me. And I'm, I'm bragging a little bit, but (laughs) I'm a black belt in Taekwondo. (laughs) That is fantastic. And of course, the important question is, can any of your brothers do that? (laughs) No. There you are. None of them. None of them. My largest brother, he's a big boy, really big boy. He always goes, hey, Black Bell. <laughs> he tackles me, gets me in a headlock. And he's like, you got to get out of this. Get out of it. If you're a Black Bell, you can get out of it. Which just frustrates me so much because <laughs> I can't get out of it. <laughs> you need to have the nunchucks tucked away in a belt and go, yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I should just run away because that's the first rule of Taekwondo that you learn. Just run. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on the way to being a black belt then. (laughs) You got number one. You got lesson number one down. I run away from anything like that. (laughs) Well, congratulations. And I think that's a fantastic thing to do. Thank you. There must be an element of letting out that frustration. Yeah. In the last test that we did to get our fourth degree, uh, we had to break three bricks on top of each other. And I, I couldn't get through the three because I was just, it was just too, too much, but I got through two bricks, <laughs> but I gave myself carpal tunnel from, from hitting it so hard. <laughs> One very determined person. That's what you are. <laughs> it's been really fantastic talking to you. Yeah. I should go off, practice my American accent. Oh, that's so exciting. Have a wonderful shoot. Yeah. That's so exciting. It must be such a really cool set. It's huge. Absolutely huge. And it kind of looks like a like a cruise ship, doesn't it? Yeah, a cruise ship in space. And there are these five girls on it who are the laziest. They only do three shows every fortnight. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I don't know why they employed them. Do they need a sixth girl? Because I have a lot of experience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how brilliant. Kathleen, thank you so much. How lovely to see you and keep very well. Thank you, Mike. It's so good to see you too. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest... 
Kathleen Rose Perkins, all the way from the good old US of A. Now, before we go, I'd like to invite you to subscribe and rate this podcast if you haven't already, and to tell you that you can follow me on my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can also download or stream the theme tune on Spotify. It was written by Pass the Peas Music. This was a cast-off production for Acast, produced by John Fenton Stevens. There you are, that didn't take long, did it? You have to keep things moving along when you're dealing with America, you know. And there's about to be someone listening from there, what with Kathleen being on. I mean, you see, they like things fast. Their cars, their food, their podcast outros. I mean, I know I usually waffle on for ages in this bit, but I'm trying to build an audience stateside. So I'm giving them what they want. And like all good American variety acts, let's finish with a song. Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam and the deer and the antelope play. Where seldom is heard Well, let's face it, very little else but the sound of people squelching across a living room carpet covered in shit. I mean, honestly, America, it's a big country. Keep your ruminating animals outside, for goodness sake. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.